Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change. All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership with Founders. I'm absolutely thrilled today to introduce Sam White. Let me briefly give you guys an idea of um, who Sam is if you haven't come across her before, and then we'll jump into our conversation. So Sam White is a multi-award winning CEO and founder of Freedom Services, a UK-based group of companies that includes Action 365, Pucker Insure and Freedom Brokers. That was a mouthful, Sam, to get through. (laughs) It was, yeah. And the uh, specimen I've done that and founder and CEO of Stellar Insurance in Australia. Um, We'll come back to that because there's an interesting kind of connection there. So Having started her first company in 1999, aged just 24, in her sister's conservatory, 20 years later, she employs over 150 staff uh, with a turnover of over £18 million. Sam's a vocal supporter of equal rights in the workplace. 67% of Sam's directors are females. And she's a vocal supporter of diversity, equality, innovation, and above all, making business human. Um, And I love your podcast, Sam, um, around that. So Freedom Services Group's brand promise is doing right by you. And Sam is an advocate of doing right by her staff and by the wider community. The group allows staff to use time to volunteer for local causes. And that's in the UK in the Manchester area. Um, And as a mother of two, philanthropy is also important to Sam and she's established a foundation with the goal of supporting some of the worthiest humanitarian causes locally, nationally and internationally. So Sam, an absolute pleasure to have you join our conversation on Brave Feminine Leadership. So for anyone in our audience who hasn't come across you before, tell us who you are. <laughs> I like to say I'm just a troublesome northerner. So we, I don't know if you have a similar thing in Australia. Like we have, we have a north-south divide in the UK. So there's generally a view that the southerners are better bred than ours. You know, they they get all the perks, and the northerners have been kind of dragged up by their bootstraps. But so we yeah. always jokingly, you know, we we jokingly refer to to the the rough edges of the northerners. But um, yeah, I mean, you know. It's funny, isn't it? Because I think when you first set up a company, there isn't really any expect. Well, there certainly wasn't for me. There was no expectations. I just didn't want to work for anyone else. I just didn't like anyone telling me what to do, if I'm really honest. And I think it takes a long time as you grow and develop and become a, a bit more successful for you to really stop and look back and kind of acknowledge how far you've come. So, you know... I remember someone turning around to me probably, I don't know, 10 years into the business and, you know, we'd, we'd grown and we were getting quite successful and I'd, I'd, um, I got a new project underway and we got some quite influential people all around the boardroom table and we were throwing ideas around. And one of the guys who was quite a good friend of mine sort of turned and looked at me and he said, like, does it ever just hit you? And I said, like, does what, like, I was just, what, this meeting? What, what, what are we talking about? And he said, all of these people are here because you mm. 
had this idea that you wanted to do this thing. And I think it was actually probably the first time it had actually occurred to me because I think you just kind of, you just get on that mill, don't you? And you just keep keep going. So, yeah, I mean, business has been a bit of a wild ride for me over the last 20 odd years, but um, it's been a lot of fun. So I always encourage that in people too. So if we go back, I remember you sharing with me, you were sort of entrepreneurial early on. Um, and I think it was sort of car washing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. at- Although, to be fair, my friend probably was a better car washer than me. Um, she, she also looked better in, in shorts and T-shirt. And I'm sure that was part of the reason that we got the number of jobs that we uh, we got down the road. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, from a young age, I kind of had quite an open view as to how to make things happen, if that, if that makes sense. I didn't have a very sort of regimented perspective on things. So we weren't getting much pocket money, the pair of us, and we got to that age that we wanted to go out and do stuff. And so I said to her, you know what, why don't we just see if we can, if we can make a bit of money in the neighbourhood. We'll go and knock on doors, see if they want the car washing. If they do, great, we can, you know, we can make some money. And then it just started being a regular thing. Every weekend we'd, we'd go out we'd wash the cars and then we'd go to the local pub in the evening and end up seeing some, some of the people that we'd wash the cars during the day, um, which was, yeah, always received sl- slightly interestingly. They knew they were supporting a very worthy cause then with the car. Of washing. course. Yes. On. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So Sam, you started your first business at 24 was, you know, I'd love to hear, um, what you did before that and what kind of triggered that decision. And was there entrepreneur, entrepreneurs in your own background, in your family? Um, so it's an interesting one. My, um, both of my granddads on both sides, on both my mum's side and my dad's side, um, were both entrepreneurs. My mum did have her own business at a, a, a young age, but after her dad died, she just kind of ended up um, sort of packing it in and and sort of staying at home with me and my sister. Um, but my dad had a bit more of it. He was a bit more risk averse. And actually, strangely, my relationship with my dad, I was a lot closer to my dad than um, my mom. Um, and my dad encouraged me to kind of be quite entrepreneurial and to have faith in myself. But he always felt safer in a sort of corporate career. And I think that's because his father um, was entrepreneurial, but to the degree that used to make a lot of money and then lose a lot of money. And I think that that caused quite a lot of disruption to my dad's childhood. He talked a lot about um, going to very expensive schools and privately educated schools. And then six months later, finding himself in some very rough comprehensives in Liverpool. And a lot of that was to do with his dad sort of kind of probably pushing it a little bit too far. And yeah, the up and down of, uh, of that dynamic. Okay, so before 24, um, you know, what were you good at at school? Were you good at school? (laughs) Well, so I was dyslexic as a really young kid. Um, And at that point, people didn't really acknowledge it. They didn't know what it was, I don't think. Um, And actually, I think the teachers thought I was almost being cheeky because with certain forms of dyslexia, you write everything backwards. Right. you know why they thought I was so smart that I was able to write things backwards just to annoy them I don't know but um they um yeah so they they didn't really pick up on it and then 
a family member of mine that had also suffered with dyslexia realized what it was um, and got me into some special classes. And, and it was, I sort of went from the bottom in every class, because of course with dyslexia, you struggle to, to read and therefore all lessons are kind of negatively affected by it. And then um, really within 12 months after the additional support, I went from the bottom group in everything to, to the top group in everything. And, you know, I've, I've read a lot on dyslexia since. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are dyslexic. Mm. And I, I, I now say it's a bit of a superpower, but like a bit of a, an undisclosed superpower. And I think it's partly because there's something about it that makes your brain work differently. Mm-hmm. So if you're dyslexic, you, you struggle to follow other people's processes or processes generally and so you'll you'll find a way to get to the end result in a different way that's possibly a quicker way than the than the usual or a so you're problem solving right from the start you're problem solving aren't you you are and I, I think there's also an element of resilience as well certainly from that age finding it just so tough to start with and then having to sort of pain stakingly go through that process to be able to kind of come out the other side I think yeah. is uh, is definitely a useful lesson for, for for kids but did you work for some other people along the way um I did a I did a psychology degree at university and in my summer holidays again wanting to earn a bit of cash and get on I got um I got a job in telesales and I did really well with it and and like all my mates was were incredibly jealous because they were working in bars and restaurants and so forth and earning sort of minimum wage and I got this 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 job in telesales and, and was making right at the time it was between two and four hundred pound a week yep. um for the hours which was a lot of a lot of spare cash for somebody of, of, of that age and I think one of my challenges when I was at university I was I was doing this psychology degree um and um, I was still living at home with my mum and that was quite a difficult situation because she had some some mental health issues and I wanted to kind of break out of that home environment but couldn't afford to and I also knew that actually if I stayed in education that time of being able to financially be independent was going to take considerably longer. I ended up sort of two years into the degree going into the third year um, just saying actually no I, you know I need to I need to get out I need to go and get a job and so I, I left university and started working um, for uh, a company that handled motor insurance claims and um, that was sort of my my first and only proper job the first and only time I've been uh, working for somebody else but it was it was great, you know. It was great grounding for me. I learned about the insurance industry. I, I learned about motor claims, um, and I also learned what I didn't want to have, be, or do. So it was, you know, it, it was it was good in a lot of respects. Uh, I love um, so telesales was where I started my career too, and so the yeah. stellar, the stellar connection that I was going to bring up was I ended my executive career as CEO of a company called Stella, Stella with an R on the end. Um, and Easy. our expertise was customer contact outsourcing. So an area that you... Very similar, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So from a starting point. I, so I think, again, that builds a lot of resilience, though, doesn't it? Because, you know, 
it's it's tough going phoning strangers and I always think now I'm you know probably not as sympathetic as I should be when somebody calls me up out of the blue and tries to sell me something because it you know I do remember how challenging um it, it was but again I think it's 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 you're not used to hearing no right yeah 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 so yeah. that kind of leads me across into your you know you becoming a founder how did that journey start um, so with a lot of disaster, really, um, I so I was working for this company, my one and only job. Um, I was doing really well. I got um, promoted and promoted and promoted, got a company car, I was earning probably £50,000 a year, giving me this, this great title, National Accounts Manager. Yep. Um, but taking particularly good care of myself. So I was, I was five stone overweight. Um, I was smoking like a chimney. I was suffering with panic attacks. I mean, you know, I, I, I always say to people, you can you can be doing really, really well in one area of your life or in a way that people would would consider to be doing well. It yeah. doesn't mean that the other areas of your life can't be a complete and utter disaster. And sometimes one will actually affect the other if you if you can't get that balance right. And I was doing sort of 14, 15 hours days, I was so desperate to succeed and, and I don't know, validate myself in, in some way, but then all of the other aspects were a complete disaster. And I went out with some male friends um, and got back and we were messing around and ended up getting into a water fight. Um, and I ended up breaking my leg, dislocating my ankle and breaking my leg, <laughs> which was... Yeah, fell asleep on the couch with a bag of frozen peas and then realised in the morning that it was slightly more serious than I'd anticipated. Oh. Completely out of action for six to eight weeks. I, I couldn't, because I was doing field sales, I couldn't, and it was non-weight bearing. And I had to move in with my sister because I literally couldn't take care of myself in, in the place. And I was living with a boyfriend at the time and realised he was utterly useless. <laughs> You know, really nice guy, but I just, you know, I'd sort of always taken care of him. Yes. And then I was in a position where I was vulnerable and, you know, not not capable of taking care of myself. And he just was. Yeah. <laughs> so I broke up with him um, whilst living at my sister's on, on her couch. Um, and then probably two months after that, my mum died. And I think a combination of all of those things together were a bit of a wake up call for me to say, you're not on the right path. Like This is not what you should be doing. And you've got an opportunity now to do something about it. And originally I was thinking of going traveling, to be honest, I was going to do a year and kind of see the world and do X, Y, Z. And I think my uncle at the time uh, approached me. He was struggling. His business was struggling. Um, he had a CCTV business and he was struggling and he couldn't make any sales. And he said, can you, can you help me out? You, you know, before you go traveling, can you do a bit? So I was like, sure. So I set up in my sister's conservatory with a phone and a desk and started doing some stuff for him. And then every time he would introduce me to one of his business associates, they'd be like, oh, could you, could you just do some stuff for me? So I'd do some stuff for them. And then at a certain point, it was a business. It was kind of... And um, I got approached by a venture capitalist who, again, somebody I knew, knew them. Huh? And they said, oh, you know, I'd like to invest in your business. And I, said, I haven't got a business. I'm just, you know, I'm just helping out 
um, a couple of these businesses before I go traveling. He was like, no, 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 you've definitely got a business and I'd like to invest in it. And I remember sitting down and having a chat with my sister at the time. And she was like, well, what do you need him for? Like he wants to save 40% of the money. What's he going to give you that you haven't already got? This business isn't, you know, isn't something that requires a level of or cash. So why don't you just do it yourself? So I did. And, you know, it, it kind of just evolved from there, from one opportunity to the next. Eventually, I ended up back in the claims um, arena because people that I knew knew me from there and were asking me to get involved. And that sort of then morphed into the first sort of proper service business that we had, which was Action 365. Okay. Okay. Um, so many questions coming out of that, Sam. Um, I'm just thinking, where will I go as a starting point? Um, okay, so the venture capital one, that's fascinating because when I look at the statistics for female founders, and I know you're passionate about this too, the numbers, um, you know, the percentages that go towards female founders is astonishingly low. So kind of sub 3%. Um, yeah, it's 1% people. in the UK, it's even worse. Wow. And there's two interesting things, two things I wanted to ask you about. Firstly, how fascinating that so early in your journey you you were approached, because I'm sure that's not the experience of many, many people. Now, when it didn't happen again, Melissa. <laughs> ah, okay. That, that was the one and only time. And to be fair, he wasn't offering money. He was offering resource uh -huh. for quite, a, quite a, a chunky percentage. Okay. So I saw a good thing and was um, was keen to, to hop on board at the time. Um, I heard you make a comment the other day that was really fascinating to me, and it was listening to a podcast, I think, where you were talking about, you'd had some conversations recently with some um, venture capitalists, and they were feeling more pressure to invest in female-led businesses. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's come up a few times recently. And what they're saying is um, you've got this, these ethical investments that are now starting to come through. So um, I think there's a realisation that if we don't change where the money goes, what types of business it invests in and, and you know, what the ideology of some of those businesses are, then we could end up in an even worse dynamic than the current trajectory that we're, we're heading on. So there is a number of new funds that are being set up with, with a much sort of wider remit as opposed to just, you know, they have to turn a profit, they've got to make this work. And, and one of the areas that they're definitely looking at is balancing out that, that gender um, issue. I, I have to say, I don't know how successful it's been yet. I'll, you know, I'm interested to see where those stats come through because I think a lot of the problems are unconscious bias. So, you know, I, I've had conversations with, with investors and um, a number of them are hold on to very strongly to this idea that they make completely fair and reasonable decisions based purely on what's in front of them. But actually, if you look at the research around it, did we talk about the promotion and prevention question thing? No. I, I, really fascinating. So there's, there's a TED talk. Um, female re researcher was looking at all of the stats for investment into women and the investment into men, got very frustrated with it. And because she was a researcher and obviously, you know, had the tools, as it were, to tackle it, she, she went to, I think it was the Tech Crunch Conference in California, and she videoed all of the pitches 
um, and and she categorized them all and you know watched all of the watched all of the questions from the investors watched all of the pictures and she found the male and female pictures didn't really um, they, they weren't that different in terms of the sort of format of them but one of the things that she found quite clearly was and again I didn't know this but um, there, there's such a thing as prevention questions and there's question promotion questions so prevention question would be what would happen to you if you lost your biggest client what right. would happen so for me, if I'm in the motor insurance business, what's going to happen if or autonomous cars come in and nobody needs car insurance anymore? Um, a, a promotion question would be, where else could you take this product? What, yeah. what areas could you go into with this? What, you know, what's the your if you're asked promotion questions, um, and this is what her research found, you were 17 times more likely to be successful in getting the funding. Mm. Um, when she studied all of the videotapes and the male um, pictures versus the female pictures, what she found is that the men were 67% likely to be asked promotion questions. And the women were pretty much the same, 65, 67% prevention questions. And, and she said, you know, that was a very clear kind of difference between the two groups. And I have to say, I have found that. I find that um, the, the, there's a subtle kind of discounting, I think, a lot of the time with investors and, and female entrepreneurs. And I, I don't know if it's the sort of standard joke of, you know, you, you don't want a woman flying a plane or, you know, they, and it's, it's there. It's, you know, or you, you don't want a female police officer. What if she's hormonal and she shoots somebody? You know, I've yeah. heard all these. <laughs> I heard all of these kind of jokes over the years and you wonder how much of it just sits underneath the surface with all of those kind of biases that that, that we all carry around I mean I'm not you know I, I don't think any of us are, are immune to that but it, it is there. That is so I mean that is um, such incredibly helpful research and I think one of the things I'm keen to do is just make sure that these conversations are it's just about awareness right and so yeah. You know, if you're in a VC fund and you happen to watch this, what sort of questions are you asking? And if you're a female founder pitching, what sort of questions are you being asked? And how can you, how can you spin how that? Can you flip it? And they do say if you if you can flip a prevention question into a promotion answer, again, you're going to massively up your chances. So even if you know, even if you are at a slight disadvantage to start with, I think knowing what that is, 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 is probably a good thing. And I do think, again, you know, I think women's attitude to risk tends to be a bit more conservative. There's a good chance in being asked a prevention question that they will try and fully answer it as a prevention question instead of saying, no, hang on a sec, you're wrong. This is what's so great about what I'm doing because yeah. the sort of sense of conscientiousness that I think women have that, no, I'll, I'll be honest, I'll, I'll say exactly where the issues are with this and, and they'll appreciate it. So Sam, um, we'll come back at some stage if we have time on your sort of experiences in the venture capital space. But what I want to go back to is you've now, you've got this business, you've decided to do it on your own um, after having the initial kind of approach. How quickly did that business grow? And was there a point where you sort of looked around and kind of realised, oh my goodness, I'm a, I'm a founder or... Yeah, um, so it, it, it actually, when I look back on the trajectory, it, it grew very quickly. Mm -hmm. 
especially considering there was no investment whatsoever. So it, it pretty much doubled every year um, from the sort of first year's trading. Um, about three years in, and everybody's always really shocked by this, I actually went traveling around the world for a year. So um, I, I'd wanted to go traveling before I set the company up. I hadn't because I'd done that, but it still kind of sat with me. And so I built up a team of probably 10, 15 people. And I had um, some management in there that I trusted that was able to keep things ticking over. And I said, right, folks, um, I'm going to go and see the world. You can phone me if you've got any problems. And like I'd be on a beach in Thailand and they, <laughs> they kind of phone me up and say, we're doing X, Y, Z. Um, and so that was probably the only year that we we didn't grow. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the year that I came back, we then absolutely skyrocketed again. And I felt like it, it, you know, it definitely was something that was was worth doing and kind of worth having. But I, I don't think I was really conscious of um, the the success of it, if that makes sense. Like Because I was just all I was ever really trying to do was move on to the next opportunity or like I've always loved the excitement of business where you're trying to get something up and running and you know you don't know whether it's going to work or not and you're testing certain things and some of it works and some of it doesn't and then it kind of there's a spark and it does really well I love that moment when something turns but then I'd be on to the next thing and and then I think you know probably um six six years in it was sort of turning over multiple millions and we were making really decent profit. And I was, you know, I was still only very young. I, you know, I was, I was 29, 30 and going out and buying Lamborghinis and, you know, yeah. having all this stuff. But I, I honestly don't think it really sunk in. It, it didn't, it didn't really kind of resonate for me. It was just something I was doing. And then, was this you know, the period when you were living in LA? Uh, the arsehole years. Yes, tell um, me about the arsehole years. I love that phase. <laughs> yeah, so um, I moved to LA in 2010. So that we were well stuck in then. I was, I was like probably at the, the, the sort of first peak of success where um, I'd set up, at that point, I'd got two businesses in the claims sector. I hadn't actually moved into full-on insurance at that point, but they were both doing very, very well. And I went over to LA with my um, wife at the time. Actually, no, it would have been, we got married when we were over there, so it would have been my girlfriend who then became my wife. Um, and I just loved it. I like we we went over actually um, to plan for children because they have some great IVF clinics over there. Yeah. And we spent a month there and, you know, I just was like, OK, this is amazing. I want to live here. And I totally understand why people get completely swept away with the whole um, Los Angeles, Beverly Hills lifestyle. I hired this ridiculous house and like like ridiculous. I think it's called the Boat House and. Um, I think One Direction hired it when they went over there. Oh. And it's on six, it's on like six floors and it's got this pool. And I, I you know, I, I really was kind of living um, it. Yeah, I was really kind of living it and enjoying it. And we stayed there for a month and I said, right, okay, we're gonna we're gonna try and make it in LA. And so um I 
decided I was going to try and set up a company over there, hired a house in Mulholland Estate, which was, you know, the estate. We had Tom Jones and Charlie Sheen and all of these incredible people. And as I, you know, as I drove through the gates and looked around at all of these houses, I was like, oh, my God, like I've I've made it. I'm like, this is like the eclume of. But of course, very quickly you realise it, it It makes no difference, like absolutely zero difference. You can be living anywhere in the world. And yes, you know, for, for the first however period of time, you get super excited about the fact that you're, you're in these places. But it, if you're, you know, if you're not engaging with people that really get you, if you've not got that and, you know, I missed... I miss doing business with people in the UK. The, the Yanks have a very different way of approaching yeah. things. And then actually I found, bizarrely, um, them to be a lot more sexist in the States than I found in the UK. And certainly in Australia, there's a perception that Australia has this really patriarchal, quite misogynistic society. But actually, in doing business in Australia, I've never been treated as anything other than an equal with the guys that I've done business with. I actually think it's Australia is a lot more progressive than people realise. It's just that people have no political correctness. And actually, I, I quite like that. You yeah. know, a, a northerner, people, you know, people say what they think and you can have that dynamic. Whereas in America, I found that to be very different. People very rarely said what they thought. And, you know, when I did... It was kind of they didn't quite know how to, to to take me, but yeah, I I did all of the things. We had the stylist come to the house for us to buy clothes off them, and you know, you just do the most ridiculous, ridiculous shit because you can. Can I ask you a question on that? And it's just you know, I was in conversation with a, a founder yesterday, an early stage founder, and. Um, you know, she's in that stage where there's things she likes doing and then there's things she thinks she should be doing. And yeah. as we were talking about it, um, one of the things that that finally kind of came out in the conversation was she said to me, well, but, but that's what a successful tech founder does. And so, yeah, okay. um, and I just wonder whether, you know, can you relate to that comment? Do your arsehole years relate to that's what you thought people did? Or, you know, have you been in that space as a founder where, um, you know, you're looking for a role model, you think you think founders do things a certain way before you then realise there was actually your way of doing things? So I, I think, if I'm honest, I think my stuff was more childhood stuff. It was a feeling of not being good enough and wanting desperately to prove that I, that I was. And I thought, you know, the more successful I was, the, the more that that, tick that box of course you know of course it doesn't and I I actually I'm very grateful for the arsehole years and those experiences because actually they serve me really well when I hit incredibly difficult times because you know subsequent to the arsehole years were the oh my god I'm gonna lose the lot years yeah (laughs) yeah and actually I think knowing that the supposed high high wasn't necessarily all it was cracked up to be really helped me when there was a risk of losing it all to know that actually you know it sounds really trite but I do know what's important to me I do know 
fundamentally what makes me happy and it's it's not you know it's not any of those things like I say I, I love business and you know I, I love um making businesses successful and, and and also you know watching teams grow and then being able to enjoy those things but they aren't that isn't that isn't ultimately what drives me anymore and it, you know it's it's not what gives me peace of mind or happiness yeah. I don't think I had the this is what a founder should do because I didn't really have anything to compare it to I think you know sometimes in the in the um, in tech or, or or fintech world now there's this they're sort of in a bit of a group community and they raise money and they they see each other was actually I, I kind of felt quite isolated in the situation there was nobody that I knew um in my peer group or that was, anything was like this. doing anything like I was doing so there wasn't really a basis of comparison maybe there's a freedom in that um yeah I think I think there probably is I think there probably is I think one of the worst things that you can do to yourself is is compare yourself to others it's a it's a really um detrimental game that people play which is why you know social media I know can be quite um harmful for certain personality types for exactly that that reason um and you know I think I've probably been quite lucky that I sort of sat outside of that that whole um, arena for, for a number of years. Would you, I mean, would you have advice for someone in that stage? So, you know, it's it's pretty successful. Um, had a good venture capital story, like, you know, already sort of got a million investment, um, business is going well, but feels feels like they've got to have a finger in every single pie when actually what really brings them the most satisfaction is some quiet time, some deep thinking, some space to evolve the product to the next level, and yet they feel this pull all the time because it's what successful founders do. Um, do you ever? I don't this? think. Yeah, I don't think it is what successful founders do. So, I think um, a lot of the time when when people want to be involved in every area of the business, it, it's a fear. And it's a it's a fear that they'll be found wanting in some way or that they let other people down. Now, my general um, observation of people that are successful, and certainly it's 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 true for me, is I know better all of the things that I'm not good at. Like if you were to give me a list of like 100 things, I could I could pretty confidently say that. 90 of them other people would do a far better job than I, <laughs> I would you know and, and and that actually gives me peace of mind because when you I pass, know yourself right you know yourself well yeah. and you know and if I pass something over I'm pretty confident that they're going to do a better job than I can and so I can relax yeah. you know you know there's 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 a there's a piece to that but I think also being aware that you know I always say nobody's watching like there's you have to kind of go nobody really cares people have got their own stuff going on they're not watching your every move to see if you get it right and if they are I mean one they're probably a stalker so you should get that dealt with (laughs) you know that it just you know it it, it, if for some random reason you've got somebody that's observing your every move and trying to point out where you go wrong then there certainly wouldn't be a person that you would want to engage with. My, my general experience is that people are far too busy dealing with their own stuff yeah. to worry about. So 
you therefore have to worry about you and if and I think most of us need quiet time we need space to reflect we need you know the I, I find um the whole way that the brain works absolutely fascinating so I'm always reading books on human biology and and you know neuroplasticity and how can how, how do you change things and it is you know absolutely amazing to me that we can we can change so much stuff with our brains, but also how badly it can work against you. And, you know, one of the things that is an absolute fact is that cre creativity comes when your brain is bored. Yes. They say one of the big challenges that we've got at the moment is that we're constantly distracting ourselves and, and your brain needs space to be able to make the connections itself. Like, so which is why when you're in the shower or you're on a treadmill or whatever, suddenly those things will lock in together and you'll go, oh. now I'm, I make loads of time in my day where I'm not just on that treadmill. And that, that will be the time where I put something together strategically in my own mind to go, that's the thing that I should be doing. And you just, I don't know, you just know. But I, I, you know, reading the science behind it, that's because my brain's been given the peace to join the dots. And I've been trying meditation for the last few months for exactly that reason. It's supposed to be, you know, um, something that really helps with that. That feel like it's working? I do, but I, I, it locks in and then it bounces out on me. So I'm really good with it for a period of time. Yeah. Um, and then it goes. But I was like that when I first started trying to exercise and, like now exercise is an absolute, it's non-negotiable for me. I have to do it every day. Otherwise, you know, I, I don't fare well with it. So I'm hoping maybe in another 10 years, I'll get to the same place with the meditation. It's such a great conversation, isn't it? If you are loving the conversation and you want to hear more about how you can take the next step in your career, come and find out about our masterclasses. Join our website at bravefeminineleadership.com. See you there. So um, what did the nearly lose it all years teach you? Um, the one that your worst fear is actually never as bad as you think it's going to be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you'd said to me the sort of three years before in Beverly Hills when I'm riding high and everything's going really well in three years' time, you're going to be staring down the barrel of all of this revenue gone and having to restructure and what have you, I would have thought, oh my God, that's, that's unpalatable. Um, the other thing is uh, the people that really do love and care for you will really love and care for you regardless of what you or don't have. Um, and the ones that don't will show themselves very quickly and actually, that's that's a good thing. So now, you know, I've got a really eclectic group of mates and people always say if they come to my house, it's random. You can you know, there could be somebody who happens to be very successful with like somebody who works in a corner shop. And my you know, my my view on life now is all about that connection with the individual like and uh, you know do we have things in common are they good people you know have we both got each other's backs in difficult sets of circumstance and the rest of the stuff doesn't really matter and I think nearly losing everything does really sharpen the mindset on, on the way up you know 
you'd probably you will attract certain types of people and it, it, it can be quite difficult to filter them out but yeah you have the difficult times and you, it, it becomes a lot clearer the radar yes exactly yeah yeah okay so um i want to ask you about stellar insurance because it's very deliberate in its um sort of female-led business um female-geared business tell us about that journey yeah so actually i heard i, I interviewed um for my podcast i don't know have you heard of cindy gallup yes i have um, she's amazing. I mean, God, what an absolute powerhouse. But um, it comes to mind with the Stella situation in something that she said to me. She said uh, her line is, be your own filter. And what she means by that is it's very clearly obvious exactly who she is and what she's about in every kind of, on a social media, on it. She's, she, you know, she's, she's very much in your face. So that, and by doing that, she attracts the people that she wants to attract and she repels the people that she, that she doesn't. Um, and, you know, with, with, with Stella, I really felt that we should be unapologetic about the fact that we wanted to design a product with women in mind. Yep. And that was to say that men couldn't use the product. Like women use male products all the time, you know, it was that we had specifically thought of women when we were designing the product. And I would say, I love Chinese food. I'm not Chinese. It's, you know, you can enjoy experiences that weren't specifically from something that you understood. Um, and you also enjoy experiences that might not have been designed for you with your demographic in the first instance. But um, in sort of 2016, so after the arsehole years and then the nearly losing everything years, I'd kind of pulled everything back around and we'd, stuck, we'd moved into insurance and we'd kind of changed the business. And um, I went through quite um, a difficult divorce. And during the year that I was kind of going through that, that breakup, which I think, again, is, is something that, you know, does ground you and kind of give you a sense of perspective. Um, I... Um, a, a business associate of mine uh, suggested that Australia was a really good market and I should go and have a look at it. And just on a bit of a whim, really, I, I kind of jumped on a plane. Isn't and... there a love story in there somewhere? I'm remembering. <laughs> yeah, not for me, unfortunately, at the time, although I did get there in the end. Um, yeah, my um, one of my closest mates had fallen in love with, uh, I mean, it was a very kind of brief thing, but she'd met this guy. It was a Scottish guy that was living in Sydney. And she'd met him and she has quite a glamorous lifestyle. She, she did, did PR for Formula One stuff and she'd met him at this Formula One party and they spent sort of three or four days together and really connected, really kind of had this bond. And then he'd had to go back to Australia. Um, and I'd been lucky enough to meet her, him with her on one of the nights that he was over and I loved him. I thought he was, you know, such a good guy. Mm. Um, but she was always a bit, um, she was always somebody that would run away from emotion. And she was like, I don't think I want to do this. I don't want the trauma of the long distance relationship. I'm going through this, um, you know, this, this messy divorce. And I said to her, look, you know what? This guy's come to me. He said that Australia is worth having a look at. I fancy checking it out. Why don't you come with me? You can help me out with a bit of the work stuff. Um, and you can meet up with this guy and if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And if it's not, hey, we both get a great holiday out of it. Um, and so she agreed. So we um, 
we booked all the flights and headed off to Australia. I had this great work trip, met all these incredible people, kind of sparked these different projects that we were working with. She met up with him. And actually, he ended up moving back to the UK and they're still together now. So that was absolutely lovely. Gorgeous. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of started my journey with, with Australia and we did a couple of projects with a couple of insurers over there. And eventually one thing led to another. And this idea of setting up a, a female sort of um, led insurance proposition um, kind of took fruition and we, we, we kind of took it from there. But it was it, it was a long time in getting all the pieces together and making it work. And it was actually the first time I got any kind of investment as well, which was interesting past the, you know, the offer when I was 24, but um, it was, yeah. Did you have to ask for it or did they approach you? How did that work? Definitely had to ask, but it was, you know, I've tried it a number of times in the UK and actually last year I was successful, but I've had a lot of knockbacks with the UK businesses over the years this was, I think, the first guy that I sat down with and explained the business proposition and, and what we had and um, said, yeah, I love it. I'm in. And, and we we did a deal. So for which I will forever be very grateful. But um, he's a pretty decent chap. Fantastic. Congratulations on it. And, um, you know, I, ch- I checked out the website. There's amazing reviews on the on the product. I can't take any credit for that at all. I have an absolutely phenomenal general manager down there, um, Rene, who has has kind of put heart and soul. I mean, I joked earlier about, um, you know, founder and CEO, but you know, if I'm going to drop anything, it'd be the, the CEO label. But really, she's, um, she's, she's just been absolutely in, incredible. And I interviewed her over the phone from the UK and then flew her to... Um, the UK and she lived with me for a week and we kind of proper got to know each other and she met my kids and and my fiance and um, we've just kind of developed what I would say is a a really good bond that we're we're in the trenches together but yeah she she runs that business so well she's she's on every aspect of the detail. Fantastic. Um, Your superpower as a founder we touched on it earlier but what would you say it is? Yeah, definitely knowing all the stuff I'm really bad at is my superpower as a as as a founder. Like I I love the big picture stuff, bringing people together, getting people excited about ideas, um, and you know, the more I can do that, then the more I can grow and develop and 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 push out anything that distracts from that, which is pretty much everything else from a business perspective then I am more than happy to, to bring in experts to, to support me. And that's actually one of the funnest things that you can do, I think, is bringing those teams together and watching them kind of flourish. Yeah. Um, so should more women consider becoming founders? Oh, God, yes. Yes, please, God, yes. You know, I, I, I've seen with friends of mine now that have set up businesses and moved forward. I think women build better businesses. I think they're less concerned about the competition element. I think men sort of are taught to win at all costs and be, you know, the triumphant victor in a set of circumstances. Whereas what I see in a lot of the female businesses is that they are genuinely trying to create something that does good outside of just 
their own ambitions and yeah. you know for that reason alone I'd like to see um a lot more but certainly you know I've got a daughter and a son and I I would like if she, if that's what she chooses to do when she's older for her to have lots and lots of examples around her of of why that's possible what do you think um keeps driving you today Sam um I, I would like to think that it's not the old scars and that I've moved past that that um, element. I think now it's just the curiosity of the of what's possible. Mm. Like you know, and and each time something you do something that's outside of your comfort zone. So you know, the, the just setting up the business in the first instance, I didn't know if I could do it, and then I did, and then it worked going and living in LA that you know that wasn't that was just a right okay I fancy doing this and then this is going to happen setting up Stella I remember when they they recorded the first advert and I flew over and I could see all these people in this room and there's stuff going on and it's like if I hadn't just had this random idea that I was gonna jump on a plane with with Lizzie and go over these people wouldn't be here doing that and and that for me is is the magic of life and the magic of business in the we have the ability to imagine something and it come into fruition. But, I mean, that I mean that is just incredible, really, when you think about it. And I think that thing that continues to drive me on, the, the what if. Mm. What if I do that? I mean, I'm, still, I'm talking now about could we take Stella into the UK? Can we take Stella into Canada? What does that look like? And that's that's really the thing from a business viewpoint that 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 kind of fires me on and then when you can tag that into um some kind of sort of wider social good so you know Stella um gives five dollars of um every uh, policy that they sell to women and girls emergency center yeah. so you can build something that you know that that is exciting and that has got opportunity for the people within the business but also if you can also get it to do something else that has a positive then you know it's winning all round I think. So we've got a so we've got a cheeky northerner who uh, went through her asshole years went through her nearly lost it all years um, you know has is incredibly grounded and and focused and that curiosity you speak about comes through so strongly just when I think about our conversation today about, oh, I've just read about this and I've just read about that, I can't help but ask you, what else do you feel intensely curious about? Because I'm just wondering where your next business might pop up. <laughs> you know, the people thing is is a real kind of um, passion for me, like understanding people, understanding what makes them tick. Businesses that I admire are businesses that help people be a better version of themselves. I've got a friend that's got a business called My Happy Minds that um, supports children with emotional resilience and teach them how to understand their own emotions and how to, to deal with them in the world. And I just think that's such a fabulous thing to do. So um, I think for me, something along the lines of how to create better businesses with a different kind of um, philosophy is, is where I'll eventually kind of um, migrate into just because it's it's where my curiosity's peaked. Mm. And I, um, I've just done a bit, something quite radical um, in the UK with, with the business, which um, 
I haven't. When, when does this come out? Actually, I probably should. <laughs> probably shouldn't say. January. I can. Oh, uh, yeah, that'll be fine. Then it'll definitely yeah. be announced at that point. So I've replaced myself as CEO um, with a psychological coach who's been coaching me and the team for the last eighteen months. So he's um, he does obviously have business experience, but his his business for the last few years has been coaching and um, working on. Um, group psychology as opposed to individual psychology and he's done such a good job with the team and and, and kind of building those relationships and that trust with them um, I'm really curious as to what a business could be like with that as the focus as opposed to a sort of traditional hierarchical CEO somebody who's genuinely just there to create emotionally safe and healthy environments and can encourage the the, the people to be able to do better. So um yeah, that's my that's my big experiment for 2020. I love that. I absolutely love that. You know, I come from a background um of of a running a business with a culture known as open book management where you know there's no hierarchy, everyone deserves as much respect as each other. Um, you know, profit share outcomes with the business, educate people about how the business runs. Like there's a there's a better way of running businesses. I'm so with you on that. Um, so is. I've just always struggled because when you hire people, they bring all of their preconceptions and their experiences. And I think, you know, and again, being honest about my own weaknesses, um, you know, because my focus tends to be on that entrepreneurial piece and how do I go out and find those extra opportunities and how we're going to put it all together I tend to hire people then to run the business but it, 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 to get that philosophy in I think the most senior person in the business has to have it running through the veins which is why you know in one of my treadmill moments or whatever a brain connection I was like actually if I really believe in this as a strategy and this is what I really want to buy into then I have to replace myself in that CEO role and I have to bring somebody in who has that skill set that's that is focused around that and you know every every one of the team that I told was so excited because they do feel um safe and trusted and you know there's that that relationship there that they can really build on as a solid foundation feel like they belong yeah yeah no. which is which is what we're we're pre-wired to be that we are animals you know and we're tribal animals and unfortunately, I think workplace environments are often so toxic that, you know, people don't feel safe. They don't feel like they belong and that they're part of, of something that that um, has that connectivity. And it just, you know, it just makes it a miserable environment. And if you're miserable at work, you're going to be miserable at home because it's just such a lot of, of time. So I think getting that right is so important incredible leadership and incredible you know I always say the best leaders are, are totally self-aware um and you know you could not be demonstrating that more um, you know profoundly than by doing this so congratulations for you and your team Sam I'd love to ask you the final question that I ask everybody which is from your perspective what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change I thought about this. I've read the question before. I thought it's it's a it's a tough one because in the past, I think you know I would have been inclined to say that brave feminine uh, leadership was was being brave enough to go into those environments that you that potentially weren't letting you in. 
So, mm -hmm. you know, put your way into those environments that you can kind of infiltrate in, in the deepest sense. But actually now I think brave feminine leadership is about creating new environments that the, the establishment has to come into, not that we have to force our way into. You know, I keep saying we need to change the game. Like if you, if you find yourself in the midst of a game where the rules are stacked against you and, you know, you, you, you haven't got the ability to play on an even playing field, then you need to set up a new game. And I think that has to be where the bravery comes in is, is us supporting each other to create some of those, those new environments. And as I say, they can, they can come join us on our pitch. I love that. I've got goosebumps listening to you talk about that. So, Sam, thanks so much for being part of our conversation on Brave Feminine Leadership. Um, I know the audience is just going to adore it. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me. If the conversation's resonating with you and it's starting some questions around you and your future and your next step, come and join us. Come and join the conversation at bravefeminineleadership.com. We would love to meet you.